Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. Hear about chiropractic research from the authors in plain English, not through the media, nor a middleman. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I'm an associate clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in private practice in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Jeff Outerbridge. But before we get to the interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of those who have given reviews on iTunes. iTunes reviews really help get others to find out about chiropractic science. So if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. I'd like to share a review by JMVDC who says, excellent podcast. What a wonderful accompaniment to my 10K runs. Well, thanks for that review, JMVDC. I've had a lot of people tell me that they like listening to the podcast as the exercise. And I think that's a fantastic idea. Why not get the benefits of learning as your brain is getting primed by exercise? So very good. Thanks again. And I look forward to sharing your flattering iTunes review in a future podcast. Please consider making a contribution to chiropractic science to keep these podcasts going. You can do so on our webcast uh, website rather at chiropracticscience.com, either by making a donation or purchasing the evidence-based patient education slides presentation. We are on social media, uh, including Facebook and Instagram. So please connect with us there. In addition to iTunes, uh, you can also listen to the podcast episodes on YouTube, Spotify, and your favorite podcasting app. All right, on to the show. All right, well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. Jeff Outerbridge. Jeff Outerbridge received a bachelor's degree in human kinetics and a master's degree in neuroscience from the University of Guelph. He began his career working for the University of Waterloo with the Ontario University's Back Pain Study, a research study examining the causes of back pain in industry. In 1996, he started an ergonomics consulting company to offer his knowledge and experience to clients in a wide range of environments, including mining, assembly line, and office work. In addition to ergonomics consulting and running a personal training business, he attended the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College, from which he graduated in 2001. From 2001 to 2011, Jeff owned a successful multidisciplinary health clinic in Ottawa that integrated chiropractic, massage therapy, acupuncture, naturopathy, rehabilitation, and family medicine. He sold his practice in 2011 to join World Spine Care, an international nonprofit organization bringing sustainable, interprofessional, evidence-based spine care to underserved regions of the world. He moved his family to Botswana to establish World Spine Care's flagship clinics in Botswana, returned from Botswana in 2013, and has remained with World Spine Care as the clinical director. Jeff has established and continues to supervise World Spine Care clinics in Botswana, the Dominican Republic, Ghana, and India, and develops new projects in other countries. He continues part-time in clinical practice at Integrative Healthcare Collective in Ottawa. 
for full disclosure, I should say that I am a founding member of World Spine Care and continue to support it each year. And I encourage everyone to provide their support as well. I'm excited to have you on the podcast today so we can learn a whole lot more about uh, the research that's being done at World Spine Care. So Dr. Outerbridge, thanks so much for coming on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so let's get started with uh, just some some basics uh, and some historical facts. Uh, how did you become interested in becoming a chiropractor? Uh, probably not the conventional route. Um, I, I never really had chiropractic on my radar through my undergrad and uh, graduate studies. I sort of, you know, grew up thinking that chiropractors were quacks and uh, never really just thought about it. And then after I finished my master's, I uh, started an ergonomics consulting business and eventually moved in with some chiropractic students who were studying at CMCC. And before, like as I was going through school, I kind of knew what I didn't want to do. I knew I didn't want to do medicine. I didn't want to do physiotherapy. At that time, physiotherapists couldn't diagnose, and that, that didn't really, I wanted to be able to diagnose. Um, and, and I couldn't, I, I, I liked teaching, but I didn't want to teach. I liked research, but I didn't want to do research full time. Um, so I just really didn't know what I was wanted to do. And so I moved in with these chiropractic students, and they started asking me a lot of questions about neuroscience because of my master's and asking me about ergonomics because of the consulting business. And, and I finally started to ask them about chiropractic, and uh, it wasn't long before I kind of realized this is exactly what I've been looking for. Um, and so I had just finished paying all my, off all my debts from my undergrad and my graduate studies and jumped right back into debt and started at CMCC. Um, in, two, in 1997, I guess it was. Um, so, yeah, and then realized, okay, so this isn't the profession I thought it was, and uh, I've just loved it ever since. Oh, that's pretty awesome. So can you tell us a little bit about your the practice that you still have in, in Ottawa? I'm assuming that you've had it throughout uh, World Spine Care, or maybe you can just tell us. Um, well, I, I had the, um, I owned the clinic in or in Ottawa for ten years, and then I actually sold that practice, and we basically liquidated our lives. We packaged everything into a container. Um, we had uh, sold our house and really just kind of hit the road, not sure not sure when we were going to come back from our travels. So um, the clinic wasn't mine anymore. So after two years, we finally realized that you know it was time to come home and. We didn't really have another project where we could take the whole family. So we decided to come back to Ottawa. And at the time, I was still working very full-time with World Spine Care. But I didn't want to um, – I wanted to continue with clinical practice because obviously with World Spine Care, I was running the clinic. So um, it was continuous clinical practice while I was there. So when I came home, I was able to join a practice very part-time. I was just working about 8 to 10 hours a week, just seeing a few patients and keeping my fingers in it and actually using the World Spine Care documentation and database and all the stuff that our clinicians were using in the field so I could really keep up with what they were doing and make sure I still had that really intimate knowledge with the documentation and database. Um, and I continued with that, um, and I, I still have, but as I've pulled back from World Spine Care and taken on a more focused role, um, I've been able to increase my practice a bit. So when I started with World Spine Care, I was very much trying to do every 
thing. So marketing and websites and fundraising and uh, and all the clinical work and um, it, it was just all sort of consuming. But as more people have come on with the organization, I've slowly focused down into just um, uh, leading the clinical program. So now I have more time and I've expanded um, into about probably 25 to 30 hours of practice now. And uh, actually the, the clinic I'm working at now, the, the owner of that clinic and I are opening a new clinic in October together. So I'll be back to actually being an owner again in October. All right. Very, very good. Um, so how did you become interested in uh, or involved in World Spine Care in the first place? Um, well, I, I knew nothing, uh, hadn't heard about it, knew nothing about it, but I was friends with uh, Dr. Simon Dagenet, who had worked with Scott for a long time, and many people would recognize his name from a lot of research uh, that's been done. And he, we became friends, and he came to Ottawa one day and met me at my practice, and we just got talking about sort of what was new in our lives. And uh, after I told him what was going on with, with us, I asked him uh, what was new with him, and he said, well, you know, Scott's planning this uh, this this thing called World Spine Care, and he wants to kind of bring spine care to developing countries. And it was really this sort of wait a second, stop moment, because I had I, I had applied for international development work when I was doing ergonomics, and it's something I've always wanted to do. I come from a family of missionaries, and my my um, grandfather. Uh, lived in Japan um, for 40 years, and my uncle was an orthopedic surgeon in China for 13 years. And so I kind of grew up with this um, this ethos of service. And so it's kind of something I always wanted to do. But once I got into chiropractic, I kind of put that away because I thought, like everybody else, ah, who cares about back pain? It's not a big deal, how little, how little I knew. And um, so when Simon came in and told me about this, I was like, wait, wait a second, tell me more. And so he kind of gave me a general outline, and at that time, that was 2009, uh, around um, August 2009, and I really, really didn't, um, it was totally out of the blue. So he told me about it, and I said, look, I, I'd love to do this for so many different reasons, and uh, do you need clinicians? And he said, well, yeah, we've, we're just getting started. We definitely need clinicians, um, and I think you'd, you'd be good, so I'll tell Scott. And I said to Simon, I said, you know, I just have to go and talk to my wife, Sophie, about this. But I'm, I'm sure she'll be on board because she's very adventurous as well. And uh, he said, okay, I'll get back to you. So he talked to Scott and um, I talked to Sophie and everybody said, great, let's go. And in October, I went down to the NAS conference. I flew down to San Francisco to meet Scott uh, and Simon. And it was my first time meeting Scott. And it literally was, um, hi, nice to meet you. Let's get to work. And we went up to uh, the hotel room that he and Joan were staying in, and we just sat down and started to lay out a plan. And that's sort of when it uh, when it all began. Well, that's really cool. Uh, hi, nice to meet you. Let's get to work. I love it. <laughs> There's nothing like getting down to work. So that's great. Now, we're certainly going to be talking about uh, the research that World Spine Care is doing, but I also just want to get a sense of the uh, the totality of what world spine care is. And so I guess a few points to say first, uh, your work with world spine care has resulted recently in a, a tremendous amount of research productivity, uh, in European spine journal. Uh, but 
you also uh, were the lead author on a paper from Journal of the Canadian Chiropractic Association, which is basically uh, seemed to me as an introduction to world spine care and gives us that sort of totality of what world spine care is. So why don't we start with uh, some information that came from that article and just your overall experience about world spine care. Uh, For anybody who's interested in reading that, it's Journal of the Canadian Chiropractic Association. It's December of 2017. So perhaps we can just start with the kind of the big global question of what is world spine care? Okay. Um, Well, world spine care was this vision of Scott Haldeman's um, to bring uh, spine spine care to underserved regions around the world. And that's really what we talked about at the very beginning. And as it evolved, we kind of really started to uh, focus down on a mission statement that has three really key pillars. So um, it is a it is bringing evidence based, integrated, sustainable spine care to underserved regions around the world, and everything that we do fits inside of the, those three pillars. So evidence based, we're using evidence to um, to guide our uh, assessment and treatment of patients. We're also gathering evidence to um, prove the efficacy of what we're doing. Um, so evidence sort of in both directions with using it and creating it. Um, and within evidence-based, it's patient-centered and using best available evidence and clinical wisdom and all those other elements of, of evidence-based. Um, with integrated, we are actually integrating our services within existing healthcare systems. So we're not operating in silos. We're not... Um, just hitting the ground for a few weeks and taking off. We're actually building long-term presence on the ground. So in the first project in Botswana, and this is the same with all of them, we engage with the government, um, we get their support, um, and they provide a lot of of what we need to open and run the clinics. So usually space, staff, equipment, um, housing, uh, all sorts of things the government will provide, and then we bring the clinicians in and and create these um, these clinics. So we integrate them within the healthcare system. So we're working with medical doctors and orthopedic surgeons and trying to sort of slowly create referral lines within the healthcare system, um, and and uh, sort of create a two way knowledge transfer where we're sharing information with the local healthcare system, but then we're gathering information from them to help us provide better care, whether it be with um, local endemic diseases or information about culture or um, just anything that, that we can gather from them. So that's how we're sort of integrating um, it within the system and eventually hope, hopefully providing services all the way from very primary remote contact all the way down to tertiary care. So that's how the, the integrated part. Now, the sustainability part is is really big. So we initially go in and we create this long-term presence in the clinic. So the idea is we set them up, we keep them running until eventually they can be taken over by um, local clinicians. So along the way, we're building capacity where we are um, educating local healthcare providers and patients and healthcare admi- uh, health administrators and so on. Um, we're also... Um, We've, through several chiropractic colleges, so Anglo-European Chiropractic College, Logan, CMCC, Palmer, um, and National, they've all offered scholarships 
through World Spine Care for local students to come and train as chiropractors to eventually go back and take over these clinics. So eventually we hope that these clinics will be locally run and the first two scholarship recipients have now returned uh, to Botswana. One went to CMCC and one went to Palmer and are now uh, working with our team in Botswana. So we really don't want to start these uh, clinics unless we have this full exit strategy where we can actually leave it to full um, local control uh, eventually down the road. So we also have a fellowship. We have fellowships that we've offered to train spine surgeons. Uh, one was through the um, uh, Anchor Spine Institute in Turkey with uh, Dr. Emre Asarajlu and Christian Eder uh, with the Swiss Spine Institute has also offered a fellowship. So we're trying to uh, also build capacity on, at the tertiary level as well um, and, and really throughout the, the healthcare system. So, um, and the, the third thing that we've been offering is we've had three spine care conferences in Botswana. So trying to help educate uh, the broader healthcare community within the countries. So that's sort of the, the sustainability part of it. So we can have, again, there's this evidence-based, sustainable, and integrated. And so that's the, that's kind of the overview. We started in, uh, so it was originated in 2008. Uh, that's sort of when it was first registered. And between 2009 when I got involved and 2011, um, we, Scott and I worked on developing all of the clinical protocols, so um, all the documentation and database and things like that. And then in 2011, the Botswana government was ready for us to actually hit the ground, so I moved my family there for two years and spent that time, again, sort of establishing the clinic, treating the patients, and really learning, adapting, and modifying all of the, what we call the toolkit, um, to um, local and to the local needs, but also making it adaptable to other cultures as well. It's always trying to think of how can we uh, create something that's applicable in all different countries. Um, so we've had some unique challenges in trying to create things that are um, that are universally applicable across cultures. Um, so that's what we've been doing. And then since uh, I left, there have been all kinds of other clinic supervisors. So we have um, volunteers that run the clinic for a year or more. Those are our clinic supervisors. This is how we maintain that sort of uh, sustainability or develop the programs until it's uh, taken over by local control. It's um, volunteers. So we have clinic supervisors who come for a year or more to run the clinics. Um, and then we have volunteer associates who are um, licensed clinicians who can come and spend anywhere from a month to three months um, helping out in the clinics as well. Um, so that's how we've been able to maintain this on-the-ground presence. And those clinicians over the years have been remarkable in helping us um, further refine and adapt um, uh, our, our toolkit and along with our research team, we have a very large research team, and they've been involved in helping us as well. So it's sort of these clinicians trying to get things to work on the ground, and then the researchers trying to help us in, in what data we want to collect and how we want to collect it and so on. So it's been this real nice sort of collaboration between clinicians and researchers that, that continues through all the research and, and data collection that we do. Um, yeah, so I hope that's a, a, a good enough overview. Yeah, that's a that's a terrific overview, and it sounds like a tremendous amount of um, foundational work that went into putting this together and then bringing it to uh, the Botswana government. Um, and 
I'm curious, but I'll perhaps save this question for later. Maybe just have you think about it as we continue to talk. But uh, I wonder how that would play out your experience in dealing with governments, uh, how we can use that kind of knowledge uh, that you've ascertained here and, and bring spine care, you know, to the forefront of, uh, I guess, first world countries where, uh, or developed countries, maybe is a better word, um, where, you know, spine care does exist, uh, tends to be expensive and maybe not uh, the best evidence-based spine care either. Uh, So I'm sure uh, maybe you can give us some pointers on that later, but I just wanted to say how how much after listening to all of this, how much uh, effort it, it must have taken to develop these clinics. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's a huge team. So uh, it's been 10 years and a massive team of people who have all contributed to it from um, clinicians from all different backgrounds and researchers with all kinds of uh, specializations and expertise. Um, And, you know, Scott really, I think, is the only person who could have done something like that and brought together uh, all the real important stakeholders in spine care and put them at the same table to solve this sort of global issue. Um, it's been remarkable in, this, in how he's rummaged up support from uh, in all different sectors. So it was pretty easy to, to bring the chiropractors on board, and we're endorsed by all the sort of major chiropractic organizations, but also we're endorsed by all the major spine organizations around the world as well, so Eurospine and NAS and a lot of surgical organizations, uh, surgical spine organizations. Um, and to, to pull together that sort of support which shows the sort of interprofessional collaboration of the organization is something that, you know, absolutely remarkable that only someone like Scott could have done. Yeah. Well, he's an amazing individual for sure. And uh, we're very lucky to have him and have him continue to contribute to our profession, no doubt. So I'd like to continue on with World Spine Care and ask you some other questions, in particular, uh, since the podcast is about uh, chiropractic science, uh, I'm interested in finding out more of the role of the chiropractor in World Spine Care. So on the ground, in the clinic, what, what does the chiropractor do? What are they in charge of? How do they communicate with the other professionals, et, et cetera? Um, it's a good question. So the the role of the chiropractor is quite central in all our clinics. So in order for somebody to, in order for us to run a clinic, the person who's uh, running the clinic has to act essentially as primary contact with spinal disorders. So we've all been talking about the primary spine practitioner. Um, that's essentially what we're looking for um, and who's running the clinic. So straight out of school, um, that's chiropractors. And so essentially um, all of our clinics are run by chiropractors. The vast majority of our volunteers are chiropractors. Now the exception is in India, uh, our project is actually at a school of physical therapy and the clinic is run by a physiotherapist. Um, So it's, it's different because the scope of practice is a little different there. But in all our other clinics, it's the same scope of practice we have most places. Now it's Interesting is, uh, so the primary spine practitioner is acting as that first contact. So they're running a clinic like 
uh, like you can imagine anywhere in uh, a high-income country. They're also responsible for um, for basically running the World Spine Care Program there. So they're not just treating patients, but they're collecting data. We have a data registry that um, gathers demographics, um, uh, presenting complaints, diagnoses, and outcomes. And uh, that data has to be very well managed. And so we have a, a, a sort of user guide for our toolkit. It's kind of like a, a detailed research protocol for exactly how we're collecting the data, how that data is getting into the database, how that data is being managed and, and quality control and all that sort of stuff. So they're, they're responsible for that aspect as well. Um, but they're also responsible for uh, the residents, for picking up volunteers and, and helping train them, for um, you know, cooking meals and fixing vehicles. And you you kind of have to be a jack of all trades uh, jack of all trades and a master of none, and at the same time, you have to be extremely adaptable um, to the patients because, I mean, this is something that, that um, is important in all of our clinical practices is to be extremely adaptable to our patients, but it takes on a different level when you're in a country where you don't really understand the culture and you have to spend more time really understanding patients, um, adapting to their culture and their customs and their beliefs, and um, and so the clinicians that arrive to do this sort of work are actually quite remarkable people, and they all sort of step into this role and adapt and do amazing work. And um, so for me, the clinicians are like the, the lifeblood of our organization and, and they're some of the most amazing people I've worked with uh, because the, the, the challenges that they face are, are really unique, and the, the type of person that's attracted is a very uh, unique person as well. So that's kind of their role, um, and in each country, the scope of practice is going to vary depending on um, depending on how the the healthcare professionals perceive us. So in Botswana, it was really interesting because um, sometimes doctors are asking us, "Why don't you prescribe medication? It just saves us a lot of time. Why don't you just prescribe medication?" Um, we have um, the right to order and interpret. MRIs and CTs and x-rays in Botswana. Now, we also have background um, assistance in that. So John Taylor uh, was somebody that we've, um, who has helped us for a long time to interpret images if we're not sure of things. And so we always have this background of clinicians that, that we can turn to if we need any support. Um, and, uh, and, and in Botswana, when I, there was a, a patient I wanted to treat who um, I felt like a local anesthetic would, would be helpful and uh, the, the um, orthopedic surgeon said, well, why don't you just book a theater? We should put them under general anesthetic. So uh, I was able to just book a, a surgical theater to do a manipulation under anesthetic. Um, so, of course, I was doing it with an orthopedic surgeon and, and with a team, but we're, we're sort of given these, these um, opportunities that we wouldn't have elsewhere. And um, in uh, Botswana now... Dr. Stephanie Eberspecker, who's running the program there, has been asked to come in and, and help out in, in surgeries. Um, so we're sort of, we're seen as, as real experts in spine care, and the, the other healthcare providers uh, really respect uh, our knowledge and our experience and our, our abilities and want to incorporate us more. So uh, it's the same with blood tests. They want us to be able to, they say, well, just order the blood test. And if, if our clinicians uh, aren't comfortable with interpreting blood tests, they'll just sit down with the doctor and say, okay, well, 
what uh, how um, you know what's going on with this blood test and and what's the significance. So in Botswana, we're we're given a lot of privileges and we obviously take them very seriously. And if it's anywhere outside of our sco- regular scope of practice or expertise, we do this in conjunction with the doctors or the surgeons. Um, so the scope of practice, like I was saying, it, it's going to vary a little bit from depending on where we are. But that's sort of an outline of, of the life of a, of a clinician. Yeah, and I'm sure the patients that you see are probably different than the ones that you see in Ottawa currently. Can you just give us maybe a couple of uh, glimpses into what, the, what kind of conditions the chiropractors uh, would see there? Um, yeah, it's interesting because um, the vast majority are still um, general musculoskeletal pain um, without red flags, without neurological symptoms. That's still the vast majority. And But what we found when we looked at our, our um, data registry is maybe in my practice in Ottawa, I might see maybe a 1% pathology um, because... Again, in, in North America or other high-income countries, chiropractors are often, they're not the first contact. And so patients have sort of been through the healthcare system and landed on your doorstep and they've already been screened for red flags and everything else. So probably might even see less than 1% um, pathology. Whereas in uh, Botswana, the, uh, it was more around 10%. And so we thought we've seen some really interesting stuff. So... Uh, dense fracture, uh, and this is, these are things that we actually um, diagnose, not just patients presenting with these, but we actually diagnose uh, rheumatoid arthritis, polyneuropathy, fractured dense, situs inversus, um, sprangles deformity, triple file, tuberculosis. Um, we actually wrote a research, a, a case series about tuberculosis from Botswana. Um, hydrocele, metastatic bone tumors, um, Oh, gosh, gout, rib fractures, myositis, HIV, um, jaw fractures, pagets, type 2 diabetes, blounts. Um, it, it, I mean, it, it goes on. So yeah. the amount of pathology there in a very short period of time um, is, a, is way more than I have ever seen in you know 15 years of practice in Ottawa. Wow. Now, do these patients get care provided for free? Well, in Botswana, they pay, I think it was 25 pula, uh, no, 5 pula, which I think is about the equivalent of 25 cents. Um, in, that's if they go to the hospital. So they walk into the hospital, they pay 5 pula, and that gives them access to everything. And that's imaging, x-ray, CT, MRI, gives them access to medication, any doctor they need to go to. So the Botswana healthcare system itself is quite remarkable. Now we in our we ourselves do not charge at our clinic. So if people are walking directly into us, then they don't they don't pay any fees. Dominican Republic um, patients, uh, if they cannot afford care, then they can apply for exemption on that. So what we're trying to do is we don't want any barriers to care wherever we uh, have a clinic. We want people to be able to access it, no matter what their income level. Um, but we have had to negotiate that in certain places. So uh, in Dominican Republic, anybody who can't afford it still gets care, but those who can't afford it do pay. Um, India, it's all free. 
um, and uh, Ghana, I think it's a, a minimal fee as well. It's not very expensive, and they, again, can apply for exemption if they need it. Okay, great. Thanks for going through that. Now, how can chiropractors get involved in World Spine Care? There's there's multiple levels. So uh, we you know we need help at all levels. And let's say if you're a clinician and you want to uh, head off into the field and either gain some experience or or spend some time. I mentioned earlier the two different levels, and one is the volunteer associate. So with a volunteer associate, you pay your own way for everything. But once you hit the ground, your accommodation is free because we have residences in, um, in all our, at all our clinics. You just pay your own food once you get there and then for any holiday travel you want to do. But you've got to get there and you've got to cover your own health insurance and things like that. Um, and that's anywhere from one month to three months. If it's any less than one month, um, it sort of it puts an extra burden on our clinic supervisors without really a payoff at the other end. Um, so we ask that people commit to a month, or uh, in Botswana, it's up to three months, because past three months, you have to apply for a, a special visa, So that's uh, and that's a real hassle that takes a lot of time. So if you're going to stay extra time, and you're going to go through that hassle, then that's where the, vault, the clinic supervisors come in, and the clinic supervisors spend a year at the clinic, or more, and they their expenses are covered. Um, and then in some locations, they're actually on a bit of a salary. So in Botswana, the Botswana government is, is covering all our expenses and actually paying salaries to our clinic supervisors right now. And um, so there's actually a bit of a salary for those if you're staying a year or more. Uh, those are the two ways to get involved as clinicians. Now, there's also enormous and endless research opportunities. And we've had researchers... Um, coming and collecting data for all sorts of things from students from, uh, um, uh, well, one from CMCC went down to Dominican Republic, uh, a couple from uh, Durban, um, Inst- Durban University of Technology came and did uh, research in, uh, in Botswana. We've had, uh, some, uh, we have a student from the University of Southern Denmark doing some work right now. Uh, Maria Hondras did all her PhD papers in Botswana with uh, University of Southern Denmark. Um, and then we have the, the World Spine Care Research, which is not um, um, driven by students, but is driven by our research team. And so we have all of these opportunities for research. So anybody who wants to get involved with research with us, um, you know, please contact our research team. So there's all, all kinds of opportunities there. And then we always have, we're always looking for help with fundraising and marketing and other stuff and just spreading the word, just telling other people about what we're doing and, and getting them excited about it um, and participating in some way and helping raise awareness and funds and stuff is absolutely fantastic. So that's another way people can get involved if they can't actually, uh, you know, get out of their clinic and get on the get on the ground. We do have on our front page this work a day for world spine care and you can click on that and get information um, that will allow you to, um, it gives you um, posters and information for patients and stuff and actually spend a day uh, raising funds for world spine care. Um, so there's all kinds of opportunities in that way to get involved. Yeah, perfect. Uh, so the next thing that I wanted to get into, and you provided a nice segue into that, is uh, the research. 
that's done through World Spine Care. And I guess for uh, listeners, uh, an easy place to learn about all the current research is uh, through the European Spine Journal in September of 2018, uh, dedicated uh, the entire uh, supplement to uh, World Spine Care and the Global Spine uh, Care Initiative. And Dr. Anthony Wolf uh, wrote an editorial that I actually am just going to quote and read verbatim because I think it really sets up uh, uh, world spine care in general, but uh, um, care to underserved communities quite well. So he says the Global Spine Care Initiative is an ambitious program based on need, enthusiasm, commitment, expertise, and evidence. We still need more knowledge. In particular, we need a fuller understanding of spine-related disorders within the ethnically, culturally, and socioeconomically diverse populations of low- and middle-income and underserved communities. We also need to know whether Global Spine Care Initiative approach does make a difference in such populations. We need to test and learn collecting data to uh, establish whether implementing such a program makes a difference these efforts must use outcome measures relevant to people in these countries and communities in a time of limited resources. We have to demonstrate a return on an investment being made by society and most importantly by people with spine related disorders. And I'll just make a couple of other points and we'll get into uh, some of these or, or at least one of these papers here. So uh, a couple of points to really drive home the idea I think is uh, from uh, the Lancet papers, uh, we know that disabling low back pain is uh, overrepresented among people with low socioeconomic status, and disability and costs attributed to low back pain are projected to increase in coming decades, in particular in these low income and middle income countries where health and other systems are often fragile and not equipped to cope with this growing burden. And so I think this is the exciting thing about World Spine Care and the Global Spine Initiative. So let's talk uh, perhaps about, uh, you know, the first uh, paper that uh, came out of this, which is kind of a, a general, uh, I guess, overview of world spine care. So I don't want to repeat what we've already gone through, but maybe you can just give us the, the highlights of um, this first paper in the supplement. So it's the Global Spine Care Initiative, World Spine Care Executive Summary, on reducing spine-related disability in low- and middle-income countries. So, Jeff, if you could maybe just hit some of the highlights of that paper, that'd be great. Well, um, let me instead, because I think a lot of your listeners may not be aware of the Global Spine Care Initiative or read the papers yet. So maybe um, a little bit of an overview of the whole collection of papers. Yeah, perfect. Um, so um, when I, you know, if you think about... Um, I read this book, uh, Essentialism, by Greg McEwen, and he talks about what trying to find your highest level of contribution. And I think that, you know, as a profession, we should be thinking about, well, what is our highest level of contribution? Um, and that is where there's going to be the greatest need and the least access to care. And we all know now that the highest need is in the low- and middle-income countries. And that's also where we have the lowest access to quality spine care. And this is, you know, at the Lancet, was a call to action to address this problem of back pain in low and middle income countries. So the response to this call to action is sort of what World Spine Care and the Global Spine Care Initiative are doing. So 
starting with World Spine Care, what we did was we got on the ground, we worked out a lot of problems to provide you know, experience in providing care in different countries, cultures, level of resources. Um, and within that, we created patient-reported outcome measures for low-literacy populations. We created the toolkit and the data registry that I talked about. We're working on sort of awareness and prevention programs. We started a yoga project, prevention and management, and community um, engagement education programs that I spoke about. Um, and then we gathered the, the tuition scholarships and support from the, conf or from the chiropractic colleges. We hosted the conferences. And this is all the stuff we kind of have been doing in the background. We still don't have this comprehensive evidence-based program that we can roll out across the country, nationwide, and through all levels of the healthcare system. We're basically treating patients in the clinic, and that doesn't really have enough of an impact, treating patients one at a time as they present to the clinic. We're only really providing care at one level of the healthcare system, which is very important, and it's a great starting point, but it's not going to really tackle the problem of spinal disorders in developing countries. And World Spine Care's vision is a world in which everyone has access to the highest quality spine care possible. And to achieve this, we needed to we really need to take what we're doing and and expand it. And I think for the greatest impact, we have to have this model of care and this program um, that that implemented that's implementing evidence-based care from the very most remote healthcare outpost all the way to tertiary care hospitals and everything in between, and all the way from education, prevention, and awareness programs, all the way, uh, again, through to highly specialized tertiary care and spine surgery, that real full, spect full spectrum. And I think you mentioned this before. The question is, well, what should we be bringing to these low- and middle-income countries? And um, sometimes when we talk about this World Spine Care Program to healthcare institutions, we kind of get this feeling and it becomes clear that what they really want are these high-cost diagnostic and surgical facilities because that's seen as our healthcare system is evolving and we're successful and we're now becoming modern. Um, and they really wanted what we had in these high-income countries. Um, so, but the, we know the model of care in high-income countries is not what we should be bringing to these low- and middle-income countries. Um, and, and we can't just consider, well, what should we be doing, but what, sh what should we not be doing? Um, and, and really, you know, evidence-based spine care is not really sexy or flashy um, because it doesn't involve uh, this sort of high-cost uh, high diagnostic and, and interventions. Um, but some institutions, like the Botswana Ministry of Health and Wellness, really embrace the World Spine Care Evidence-Based Integrated Sustainable Approach. And um, one of the key figures in Botswana was Shanaz El-Halabi, who was the deputy uh, or the uh, permanent secretary to the Minister of Health, and she's the one who wrote the introductory letter in the European Spine Journal Supplement as well. And she really saw the vision, and, um, and so Botswana was, was really an awesome place to open this up. So the Global Spine Care Initiative is really the first attempt to create this kind of comprehensive model and strategy for the delivery of, of the highest quality spine care possible. Um, and it's also, as you mentioned before, this is a, this is a model that's relevant for high-income countries and their healthcare systems. It's not just, it's not like we're creating something different from low- and middle-income countries. The Global Spine Care Initiative is creating something that's relevant to all countries, no matter what the income level. But what's, what's great about the Global Spine Care Initiative is it um, gives information in how to deliver quality spine care 
in countries with different levels of resources. Um, and, and that's where it's, it's also a little unique, is it, it helps us figure out how do we do this in a high-income country and how do we do this in a low-middle-income uh, country? How do we do this? The very front line in the remote village with nothing but a few nurses all the way down to a really high-end surgical facility. And you have to recognize that the Global Spine Care Initiative, this is a starting point. Um, and it's, it's, where, uh, it, it's where World Spine Care has to now take this um, model and care pathway and so on and implement it and test it and modify it so that it actually becomes even more functional and test it um, and, and do the research around it. So that's kind of the overview of how World Spine Care and the Global Spine Care Initiative kind of fit together. So uh, now you want me to do an overview of the Global Spine Care Initiative? Um, well, that would be that would be terrific um, if you could just do a brief synopsis uh, because I wanted to ask you about the the care pathway as well. Um, well, let's fit that into the overall uh, overview. So what happened is there are nine foundational articles and four consensus-based articles. So the nine foundational articles, the first two were about the burden. This is the problem we have. And then the next seven articles were about interventions. What do we actually do to, like, what are the uh, evidence-based interventions? And they come into the categories of, what's evidence-based assessment, when we should and shouldn't use diagnostic imaging and, and other tests and so on. When, then non-invasive management, invasive interventions, and then there's a surgical uh, care stratification, non-invasive invasive for uh, compression fracture, fractures, psychosocial in issues, and then prevention and public health. So those are the foundational articles. Then the, the team of, of um, collaborators, researchers, clinicians, and so on, got together and created this, these four consensus-based articles. So number one, how do we classify uh, spinal disorders? And then within each of those classifications, let's take that intervention information and put it into a care pathway. So for each class, um, when a patient comes in, you put them in the class and then you, you can see what are the evidence-based uh, interventions, well, assessment, assessment intervention, and, and psychosocial issues, and so on. And that's been created into a set of flashcards, essentially, that can be, um, we can build a training program around and offer these flashcards and training around it so that everybody from frontline all the way to tertiary care knows at least what evidence-based interventions, what, what are the evidence-based interventions for each of these different classifications. Um, so we have the classification then the care pathway, then the resources, how do we, um, what, what is needed on the ground to be able to offer evidence-based spine care, and then how do we, what are the main principles and implementation of the program. So I think the real important ones for the average chiropractor is classification and then care pathway. Gotcha. So, uh, yeah, why don't we get into that? Uh, and that that's a specific um, paper, uh, Global Spine Care Initiative Care Pathway for People with Spine-Related uh, Concerns. And I'm not so much as interested in getting down to, you know, all the methodological issues, but if you could just give us your um, perspective on how you've gone about implementing 
these programs and, and how does it happen? That, that would be terrific. Uh, um, we implemented, like what we've done on the ground is we've implemented what we thought was the best evidence-based sustainable integrated program that we could offer. Now we have additional knowledge um, from the Global Spine Care Initiative that's going to further direct us. So what, how we implement a program or how we have is bringing that primary spine practitioner and setting up primary contact clinics within the healthcare system. And then that volunteer, that um, clinic supervisor who's on the ground um, is not just running the clinic, but also now starts to kind of get the lay of the land, figure out what's needed, who to contact, um, who's going to be the support, where to find funding, and so on, so that the program can kind of expand out in both directions um, from that primary contact. So out into the rural communities, um, and then also towards the tertiary care as well. And so we, to, to take a comprehensive model and approach a government system and say this is exactly how we should, we're going to implement it in your country, I think would be a little bit overwhelming and extreme amount of cost and resources. But to start the way, so the way we've gone about it is gone in small and expanded from there as we gather more and more information. So that's kind of how we have implemented it. But obviously, that as as we gain more knowledge and experience from the Global Spine Care Initiative, following this approach, that's probably going to shift and change. But um, up to this point, it, it's worked, and we've gained a lot of uh, support from all the governments that we've worked with. Um, and so right now, with our toolkit, with this new pathway, part of our job is going to be implementing this new pathway within our existing toolkit um, and then creating education programs around those. Okay, terrific. So, Jeff, what's it like being a clinician researcher on one of these uh, multidisciplinary world spine care teams? Uh, I know you have participated in this research uh, and I know you have strong feelings that clinicians should be a part of the research, but uh, just give us some perspective on that. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's awesome. It's absolutely amazing to be um, a part of a team of some of the leading researchers uh, in in spine care around the world coming together and being able to participate that in that, not having as um, impressive a research background, um, but coming more from the clinical point of view. And our our research team uh, has a lot of clinicians on it. We always have our current clinic supervisors in the field are always part of the research meetings. And then we always invite researchers to our clinical meetings as well. So when we're making decisions on uh, modifying or updating our toolkit, we can have a researcher in the background kind of going, well, I think this, this is a better way to do it or this is a better way to do it from the data collection point of view. Um, and then when the researchers are saying, well, we want to do this and this and this, our clinicians on the ground are saying, okay, uh, if you want to do it this way, we've got to modify this. This can't be done. Uh, we'll have to change that. And so the collaboration, sometimes it gets pretty heated um, in, the, in the meetings, which is a good thing. But in the end, I think the, the quality of the research and the quality of the data collection is really good when the clinicians are really brought into the research world and given a clear understanding of what the researchers want to do, and then the researchers really have a clear understanding of what the clinicians are doing and what is and is not possible on the ground. 
Um, and that's why I think that every every research team should have clinicians on it, uh, and every clinical team should have researchers participating as well. Um, and, and a lot of the researchers we have on our team have amazing backgrounds in every area imaginable. Yeah, most definitely. It's a kind of a dream team of uh, researchers. Fantastic. One of the things uh, you had mentioned to me before the the uh, call today was that you had to develop some novel patient reported outcome measures. Um, I'd be interested in hearing a little bit more about this. Yeah. Uh, so when we got on the, on the ground, we tried to use existing um, patient reported outcome measures. And we had a unique situation, and that is, number one, low literacy. So um, you can't use words like, you could, we couldn't use words like depression or anxiety um, and try to translate it and explain it to somebody. We couldn't, you know, sometimes the questions asked about vacuuming or even getting on a bus uh, or getting, like, stepping onto a bus, which um, some people might do, but not in these areas. So we had, we we found after a while, we kind of made the decision that there's just nothing out there that really um, was working for us. So we had to try to create this novel patient-reported outcome measure, and there were two things. Number one, we didn't want to have a patient-reported outcome measure for every part of the body because that just creates a, um, a nightmare in the clinic. We wanted to try to create a patient-reported outcome measure that would, could be used for every body part and uh, was very simple and straightforward and, uh, and patients would understand and could be used across different cultures and countries. So already I'm sure you're thinking, well, that's impossible. Um, and we're not sure whether it's possible yet because we actually haven't done a validation study on the, on the patient-reported outcome measure. But those were the requirements. That's what we were looking for on the ground. And we created something that seems to be working, seems to be responsive, um, but we still need to go through a proper validation study to find out um, whether it is uh, it is a good patient-reported outcome measure. But that was really challenging because sitting down with patients and trying to, and, and actually talking to the patients and saying um, uh, through an interpreter, saying, "How did you feel about answering this questionnaire? How um, um, did you find this difficult? Did you understand it?" and and I'll, I'll never forget sitting with this elderly woman who had less than a primary education and she was sitting down and I was just trying to ask her about how she felt about the questionnaire and whether she understood it. And she, tears started to well up in her eyes and she didn't know what to say. And finally through the interpreter, um, she, the interpreter said, well, she really doesn't understand why you keep asking her questions. When she was at school, when she was a very young child at school, if, if she didn't know the answer, the teacher would just go to somebody else and ask to get an answer. Why do you keep asking her the same question? Um, and I, I hadn't been asking the same question. I was trying to ask it in different ways. And so I had to explain to her that I really was interested in what she had to say and that and that um, and, and try to make her understand why her, her feedback was so important to us. And eventually she relaxed and, and started to tell us. But um, we went through that process with a lot of patients to try to see what worked. And, and the patient-reported outcome measure kept having to get stripped down and stripped down and stripped down to something simpler and simpler and simpler. Um, so that, that's been a really unique challenge, and I'm really looking forward to that validation study to see if this is something that actually um, is, is, whether it works. 
Yeah, well, I I can tell you that there's uh, spine care folks out there all over the world that would appreciate <laughs> a stripped down version of what currently exists because, you know, uh, there is an outcome measure for this, for that. Uh, and there's so many so many outcome measures and they're, and they are rather complicated. And sometimes they ask pretty explicit questions, uh, that don't pertain to people. And so uh, a nice, clean, simple outcome measure would be fantastic. <laughs> I'll just speak for myself. Anyways, I would appreciate it. Well, <laughs> it's speaking to me too, which is why I think that, that, um, the average clinician in the average private practice doesn't use outcome measures. They, they don't. And I think it's just because um, they just don't work. They're too burdensome. They're too cumbersome. Some people do for particular, so some people use start back for low back pain. Great. Uh, or Bournemouth. Um, great. But what if they come in with shoulder pain? What are we going to use? And what if they come in with knee pain or ankle pain? Like, how do we, how do we have this jumble of all these different um, patient-reported outcome measures? So you may find clinics that will use one particular one for body, one body part, especially if it's a real spine-focused practice. But for the general clinician, I mean, I treat everything from head to toe. I can't use, if I use just the start back, it would only be a, a smaller percentage of my patients that, that this is relevant to. Um, and then asking a patient to repeat outcome measures because um, – Outcome measures are, we repeat them and the patients fill them in after each, after each of the first three, uh, treatments and then every third after that. Because a patient reported outcome measure is not useful, is not, are not as useful if you give one at the beginning and then one at the end of care. The patient reported outcome measure really needs to, to, um, um, inform the course of your care. And so it needs to be, re- um, applied at a repeated basis so the clinician can find out, are things really actually getting better? And then use it for an overall outcome measure. Um, so again, it, it's these sort of ideas we've had to play with and, and grapple with and try to figure out in the field. Sure. Yeah, fantastic. Well, uh, Jeff, one, one last question here, uh, and I ask this of all of my guests. And in your situation, it's, it's very unique because you're uh, primarily a clinician, uh, but you've had experience in the administrative sides, talking with governments and, and certainly doing research. Um, so I'm curious to hear uh, about your uh, experience with research and what advice you'd give to um, chiropractors or students who might wish to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. Ah, great question. Um, and I always like hearing what other people say in your podcast. Um, and I think, yeah, for me, it's a little different. I like to be a jack of all trades and a master of none. Um, that's sort of been my life mission, I think. And uh, I like teaching, but I don't want to be a full-time teacher. I like the clinical work, but not a full-time clinician. I like research, but not a full-time researcher. And so I've had this opportunity to be a clinician and and do research. So I think that Sometimes you, clinicians are like, well, I'd like to get involved, but I don't really want to do a PhD and I don't want to do a master's and so I don't really know how to go about it. Um, and I think looking for those opportunities where you can participate in existing research um, is a really great way to kind of get your feet in, to be a clinician and and also to be part of research but not driving it. 
um, not doing the PhD or, or, or master's yourself, but participating and helping out. So a lot of the data registries that are, that are popping up, um, uh, like Spine IQ and things like that, to participate in those types of things, to be a part of that research um, and, and find out if you like it. Um, you can always go further into it, but being on the periphery and having it's just sort of part of your your uh, clinical practice, uh, collecting your own data and, and playing with it, uh, anything. But you don't have to jump in head first and feet first and kind of be a full time clinician or full time researcher. Um, and I, I I absolutely love it. And um, we're always looking for extra people to help out with research. So um, you know you can always contact our our research team and and uh and see if there's any way that you can help out yeah terrific advice and i would just echo the comment about clinicians getting involved and you don't have to be full-time uh, i mean i can just speak for our program that we're typically always looking for uh researchers to help with uh, uh projects in the field uh so yeah, absolutely. There's so many different ways to do it. So I'm really happy that you uh, mentioned that as as an option. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today, uh, Dr. Outerbridge, and talking about World Spine Care, the Global Spine Care Initiative, and and your practice and your research experience as really valuable information. So thanks again for coming on. Thank you very much again for the invitation, Dean. It was a lot of fun. Thanks again for listening to the Chiropractic Science Podcast, this episode with Dr. Jeff Outerbridge, where he told us all about World Spine Care and the Global Spine Care Initiative. We look forward to bringing you more podcast episodes coming soon.